This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. When you've been leading companies like Pepsi and Apple, you should have a pretty good pedigree in the business community. John Scully does. A self-professed lifelong entrepreneur is pushing into the smartphone world with a company called OB World Phones. He also has a book out, been out for a little more than a year or so, Moonshot, Game-Changing Strategies to Build Billion-Dollar Businesses. And we welcome John Scully to our microphones today. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice, nice to be with you. Great to have you. Uh, you announced, I guess, in, in late August that, that Obi really had its first two phones that was going to put on the market. Uh, how are they doing so far? Have they reached the market yet? We uh, just launched them in the market, uh, the first market uh, to go live with them is in Dubai. Uh, we had a terrific uh, first few weeks on it. Uh, we're just, we'll be probably in 14 countries uh, by the end of this year. Our goal is to uh, be in over 40 countries by the end of next year. And by 2017, we expect to be in 70 of the fastest growing smartphone companies, countries in the world. So uh, it's, it's a very different product than iPhone, which is positioned at the high end of the market. And obviously, you know, has over 90% of the profits mm-hmm. at that premium end of the market. We're focused at um, hundreds of dollars less uh, price than the premium brands. And it's the former Apple design team that worked with me when I was at Apple, uh, who most recently did Beats. And um, they're very excited as I am, and we're building this product out with just exceptional Silicon Valley design. Well, and, and as you mentioned, uh, and we mentioned at the top, is, is that in your book you you talk about being basically a lifelong entrepreneur, and obviously you've you've worked for big companies, but this is this is kind of your bailiwick right now. You really like being involved in projects like this. Well, I, I'm a I'm not a financial engineer. I'm a builder, and I help uh, entrepreneurs in a few selected areas where they're truly transformational opportunities to build their companies. And I invest, and I. Um, and to bring, make, bring in other capital, uh, bring in partnerships as we have with OB World Phone. And the real goal here is to look for design gaps in large commoditized industries. Mm-hmm. And design gaps are these opportunities where you can go in and build um, really unique, beautifully designed, great customer experience, uh, designed products or services, which can be differentiated from everybody else. And that's uh, the opportunity we saw in this giant uh, market around the world called smartphones. For the most part, the people at the premium end of the market are, with the exception of Apple that's done you know, unbelievably well, are, are hemorrhaging losses because they're designing products for the high end of the market. They have huge overhead expenses and research and development, field marketing expenses. We built a business that has very frugal expenses. We're new companies, so we don't carry the legacy corporate overhead. And we're at Silicon Valley, the team that brings the best talent together that worked with me at Apple years ago. Yeah. And we found the design gap, which is at a more affordable price point, but no compromise in, in the technology or 
materials fit and finish of the products. And that's what OB World Phone is all about. And, and as you mentioned a second ago, you're going into a, a business uh, that has incredible growth potential in a variety of emerging markets ar- around the world. And, and, you know, we think so kind of almost, uh, you know, off the cuff about uh, the world, the uh, smartphone industry here in the U.S. and obviously in Europe and, and, and Asia to some respects. But in so many parts of the world, smartphones are still an unbelievably new product, a, a, an area that hasn't even been tapped at this point. Yeah, well, here's the way to think of it. Um, around the world, there are obviously a lot of really inexpensive uh, smartphones. You could buy them for as little as $35 and buy them off the street. And they may work for a month or two. Uh, so we don't even pay much attention to that side of the commoditized market. What we're focused on are these 70 countries that are converting from low bandwidth to higher bandwidth, as we're well accustomed to in the U.S. The U.S. is a replacement market. It's dominated by one company, yep. Apple's iPhone. Yep. And it has a very controlled distribution system the major wireless operators. You go to the rest of the world, though, and it's really quite different. And there, there's huge opportunities to go in and get first-time buyers. Many of these countries, the population is an average of 25 years or less, is over 50% of the pop. And these people just don't have $800 to spend on a premium price smartphone. So our smartphones are priced from uh, roughly $129 up to about $199, and uh, it's a spot of the market where we think we can do do pretty well. You you obviously, as you said, you expect to be in a lot of countries in the very near future. Then with that business model, if you have success in all of these countries, then do you even think about trying to come into the market here in the United States and providing an option out, outside of Apple? Because even though you know Apple is is a huge brand name, some of the choices they're making right now with, you know, the payment as you go and being able to switch your phone every, you know, every year with, a, you know, pay-by-the-month plan, I, I don't know if it's going to work. Well, I think it will work. I think it's a very smart move by Apple. Uh, what it's doing is that app, the iPhone is so successful that they're saying, well, where else can we get profits? And so they're cutting into the wireless operator's uh, revenue stream by uh, saying they will offer – for $32 a month, mm-hmm. an iPhone and an automatic upgrade when a new one comes along. And they've developed a pre-owned uh, market. A lot of people can't afford to buy the first iPhone at the $800 price point. So they'll buy a used uh, iPhone at maybe $500 price point. And so uh, that's a smart strategy from Apple's standpoint. Going into the U.S. is not the place we would start yep. because Apple is so strong. And by the way, we're not trying to compete with Apple. Our yep. products don't look anything like Apple's. Uh, they're they're entirely different. It's it's like, you know, how can you have, um, you know, in the, in the fashion industry, several different brands, each successful, but they don't necessarily take away from each other. A design gap strategy isn't just finding a hole in the market that you can compete with and take share away from someone else. Mm-hmm. It's about expanding the market. And so our goal with OB World Phones is to find that design gap where we can actually expand the market. Now, we may at some point in the future. You know, be able to uh, see a way of putting some services together with our OB World phone. And we might at some point even consider coming into the U.S., but only after you know, we've demonstrated strong success in these fast-growing you know, countries around the world, which you know, are not replacement markets. They're still you know, 25-year-old people or even younger who are getting the first smartphone. 
Is the smartphone in other countries around the world kind of the choice because of the portability for the consumer? And I say that, and I ask that because there are a variety of pictures, and you may see, you may have seen some of them, uh, with all the refugees that have been uh, making their way out of countries like Syria and moving north, and they were going across uh, uh, various uh, bodies of water, and you would see them coming up on on to different shores, and what they basically had in their hand one of the last things they had was their smartphone. Yeah, oh, that's so true. And uh, I can give you many anecdotal stories that we've seen in Africa, Middle East. Uh, for example, uh, when I was with the incoming president of Tanzania, we were just launching there uh, recently, and he said, John, he said, look, we have no consumer infrastructure in our, our country. So for us, the hierarchy of life is water, food, shelter. Mm-hmm. And then he pauses and says, smartphone. Because uh, the smartphone can be the way that uh, uh, payments are made. Uh, it can be the way that people get information who don't have information. It could be uh, consumer health. It can be all kinds of things. Now, I'm really focused on the next billion people in the middle class. These people are coming from these developing markets. And their model of the middle class has got to be different economically than, than ours. Mm-hmm. So they aspire to... Uh, many of the same things we have become accustomed to, you still have as much money to spend. And that's why uh, the OB World phone that is priced aggressively uh, way above the cheapest phones, but way be- hundreds of dollars below the premium phones is so interesting because it means that we can give them a no compromise fit, finish materials, technology product yeah. because we work directly with the major component vendors and we know how to run a frugal uh, expense model because we own uh, supply chain and distribution companies all over the world. So we have the ability to do something which the big premium brands just can't do and make money at. We're talking with John Scully, uh, former CEO of Pepsi and Apple. We're talking on a variety of things, including his uh, latest venture, which is OB World Phones, but also uh, the book, which you uh, have had out now for, for a little bit of time, called Moonshot. And, and let's talk about that for a few minutes, because I, I wanted you to start by explaining the concept of the book, because the term moonshot is one that's that's been around in the tech industry for quite some time. Absolutely. And, and it all goes back to John F. Kennedy in 1961 saying we're going to put men on the moon and return them safely to Earth before the end of the decade, the decade of the 60s. The reality was no technology existed when he said that that would enable one to do that. But we figured out as a uh, ingenious nation that we are, you know, those technologies which became the foundation for the digital economy we have today. So moonshot means like when uh, Google introduced uh, relevancy ranking search, the world was never again the next day. Or when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, the next day, the world was never again the same. So moonshots are those moments of change that just change everything. And there are many of those that are still going to happen. The biggest one I talk about in my book, Moonshot, taking that Silicon Valley metaphor, uh, is the combination of big data analytics, of cloud computing, of of, um, mobile devices, and the derivative effects of those exponentially growing technologies is that it shifted the power from the producers to the customers, meaning that the large incumbent companies, industry after industry all over the world that have had entrenched positions now suddenly new, better, faster, cheaper types of products and services are coming along thanks to these technologies and because of social media and the transparency of 
of uh, information today. Mm-hmm. People are paying more attention to the opinions of other customers than they are to the advertising campaigns of the entrenched companies. And it's enabling these new companies who are coming out in just a few years being worth tens of billions of dollars, and they don't spend any money on advertising. Why? Because their customer experience is so good. It could be Airbnb. It could be Uber. It could be other companies that are able to build franchises in a matter of just a few years that would have been inconceivable in the past. And that's the moonshot we're talking about. Uber was just the early days. Uber was the one that I I was thinking right off the top and and Airbnb obviously as well. But it's interesting because you also touch on a little bit the fact that uh, there are other sectors which are starting to see these as well. Healthcare is obviously one of them. And one sector which, when you think about the history of it, it really is, I think in some respects, shocking, but maybe not so much right now that we're seeing incredible growth and wealth in this area, is education and the variety of different ventures that are out there to really push various types of education forward. Yeah, well, I would start with, um, some of the ones that are actually doing it and have created unicorn businesses, and uh, that is happening in, in consumer telehealth, and I'm involved with one called MD Live. Um, we're building a unicorn business there. Uh, another one is in uh, consumer cloud, big data analytics. I co-founded a company called Zeta Interactive. Uh, we just raised $125 million from Blackstone on a billion-dollar valuation. And the one of the most exciting of all is uh, in the consumer fintech space, where I'm involved with a, a company called Neft, uh, which yeah. is building out the next platform for consumer credit. Again, a, a, a multi-billion-dollar uh, uh, valuation opportunity. So it's happening all over. Unfortunately, education doesn't have those examples yet. It's an obvious one, but in education is so entrenched in special interests and, and labor unions and uh, other issues that it's been very, very slow. Uh, to get to the point where the industries I just mentioned uh, have created uh, so much uh, uh, value. So uh, I hope education gets there. It should, uh, but it hasn't yet. But seemingly education, you would say, even as you said, has even moved slowly. It's moving forward just because of the changes we've seen with the variety of charter schools that have popped up in, in, in towns all across the United States and the trouble by a lot of cities to be able to properly fund their public education school systems. Here in Philadelphia, it's, it's pretty well known. We've talked about it on this show before. Chicago's another one. There's a variety of towns that are struggling in that area. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reality is the charter school model does work. Um, parents um, are clamoring to get into them uh, for, the, for their, their kids. The teachers' unions are adamantly against them. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's been a counterbalance to it. Uh, teacher unions are worried about, well, what happens to the other uh, public schools? The reality is that a lot of um, philanthropic groups are stepping in to help charter schools. So I think it's inevitable that the charter school model is going to get more important, even you know, with these uh, counterforces that um, don't want, want to see any change. But the reality is that technology can enable you know, better and better ways to deliver education. And whether it's done inside of the existing education system or whether it's done around the education system, mm-hmm. uh, as so many things that happen in high tech, we'll just have to see. But I, let me just point out one interesting fact. The fact is, when I went to school, uh, all of the metrics of performance were around what did you remember, what did you memorize. Sure. Yeah. Today, 
the answers come for free. Go on Wikipedia, go on Google. It's the questions where you learn the most. It's learning how to ask smart questions, having curiosity and be able to turn that into the context of smart questions. And so I think that the real breakthrough in education with digital technology is going to be helping us restructure education around smart questions, around discussions, around kids learning together, you know, as, as teams, as opposed to worrying about, you know, is a kid, you know, cheating by, you know, getting help from another student. So these are cultural behavioral changes, which are taking much longer to happen than the technology. The technology is here now, ready to go. It's the other obstacles that are causing the challenge. And we're talking with John Scully, uh, former CEO of Pepsi and Apple, uh, also part of the uh, venture Obi World Phones, and as well uh, author of the book Moonshot, Game-Changing Strategies to Build Billion-Dollar Businesses. Uh, you're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. It's interesting, it, it, right in the first part of, of your book, and, and uh, I found it very interesting that it's seemingly one of the key words that you have as part of this book early on is the word adaptive. And it really kind of plays in a variety of different pieces to this whole build-out that we may very well see going forward in the next 20 years or so. Well, I think adaptive is such an operative word, and I talk about uh, the role of adaptive innovators. And what sets the U.S. so uniquely apart from the rest of the world is that we're very pragmatic as, as a, a people. We are you know, an immigrant nation. We come from all, all over uh, we have a nation of curiosity. We learn more from mistakes and are forgiving of mistakes, as we see that as part of the real learning process, particularly for entrepreneurial businesses. And so those people who are able to adapt and learn from experience, even their failures, are the ones that are going to be able to progress the most. Many cultures can't accept that idea, the idea of making a mistake or adapting or changing your mind. Um, it's not something that's culturally built into their system. And so it's been harder for many countries with very educated uh, people uh, to be able to do the adaptive innovation that the U.S. has become so well recognized for. We're talking with John Scully. Part of this is also, as you mentioned, the the, the four areas, and, and you've mentioned it, cloud being another one, mobile being a very important part, data being one, but also you talk about uh, about sensors being a part of this as well, and that's part of that collection of data that we really are seeing a lot more the last, I'd say, maybe five to ten years or so. Yeah, absolutely, and it's only going to increase. Think of it this way. Uh, many people, including McKinsey and company and uh, Intel, Cisco, IBM, GE, you know, major corporations are betting their whole future on what they call the Internet of Things. They're estimating yep. that there'll be 50 billion wireless connected devices. These are sensors uh, by the early 2020s. Well, there are only six and a half billion people on the planet. So who's being connected to what? And it's really machines connecting to machines. It means that we're moving into an era of machine learning where we're going to have the ability of machines to be able to not replace humans. This is not cyborg. This is about uh, machines getting smarter and smarter, able to take over more of the work that has been traditionally done, not just by the heavy lifting in factories. We saw that with robotics and the first generation of technology, uh, not the next generation of technology, which was productivity tools for knowledge workers, but we're moving into a new era mm -hmm. where Many of these smart machines are going to replace a lot of the skills that we 
have been rewarding with high income um, over the last 20 years. And how does the nation adjust to that change? Because it's going to mean that we're going to need people with new skills. Yep. They're going to have to have the ability to adapt as innovators to a new world. And I predict that the next five years, we're going to see so many changes in so many industries, from precision medicine to to the industrial Internet to uh, the ability for more and more services to be, be delivered by mobile devices. These things are going to dramatically change the world, and yet we have education trapped back in the 20th century. And we got to do something about that. Uh, otherwise, a lot of people are going to be left out. And have you noticed that the percent of people who say they're in the middle class is going down further and further? Yep. And have you noticed that uh, it's not the unemployment figure of 5.1% that we should be focusing on? It's that we've never been at a lower percentage of people who are capable of work yep. uh, who have dropped out of the workforce. Now, about 97 million people have dropped out. They aren't looking for jobs. This is what we ought to be worrying about as a nation. But, of course, it's not what the politicians want to talk about. You you hit on something that I we mentioned on this show every month when the uh, when the, the jobs report comes out, that the unemployment number really isn't that big of, of a concern anymore. It shouldn't really even, you know, it holds a little weight, but not much. It's the labor participation rate that it has been stubbornly low and historically low for a long, long time. And it does bring up a good point that not only do you need to change the type of education that we're providing kids going forward so they can be ready for college and work, but also it also talks about what we need to do with people that are already in the workforce and in companies that there's a great opportunity to repurpose some of these people that, you know, you can move them into jobs that are open and, and teach them and, and help them learn. And we're maybe not doing enough of that as corporations these days. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. If you go back uh, 20 years ago, 5% of the workforce or independent contractors. Today, it's sure. over 20% of the workforce. It's estimated it will go to 40% of the workforce by the uh, by probably 2025. Well, this means that not only is work changing, but, but uh, how people think about are they employed by a large employer or are they employed by themselves working as independent contractors, working from wherever they happen to be, maybe working for several different companies on a project basis. All of these things are changing, but we don't see our education system changing. I don't look to the politicians as to solve any of these problems. Why? <laughs> because they're basically lawyers. They've never built anything. And so for the most part, uh, it's going to have to be the ingenuity, the pragmatism, of small business. That's where all the jobs are created. And hopefully, you know, uh, parents uh, who want to see changes in the way schools are done, uh, entrepreneurs who want to play a role in reinventing how education is delivered, just like we're reinventing how healthcare is delivered. You know, somehow in this pragmatic nation, we'll figure it out. It's just long and messy because we're a democracy and no one ever said democracies were efficient, but they are effective in the long term. Where do you see, you mentioned the, the, the healthcare industry, but where do you really see the biggest changes in healthcare coming in the next decade? Uh, without a question, the biggest changes are the shifting of responsibility to the consumer, who in most cases will be the patient, uh, because the consumer could also be the uh, person in the family who is looking out for you know, the other family members, whether it's their spouse or whether it's their children or their in-laws, yeah. uh, but moving more and more of the responsibility to the consumer. As we do that, 
we'll be able to take the inefficiencies out of the delivery of the healthcare system. Uh, there's, there's, here we are. We have the best uh, technology in the world for medicine, for healthcare, and yet we are the most inefficient in terms of delivering it. And how do you fix that? Well, uh, you move more and more towards a, a self-service model, give consumers transparency of what things really cost, give them telehealth, give them access to telemedicine, give them access to coaches online. Uh, you know, if, if you took uh, just obesity, a third of the population has body mass of over 30. Uh, that's a serious con- uh, chronic care disease. And if you just got people to lose 20 pounds, you'd save hundreds of billions of dollars of the $3, billion, $3 trillion of health spend we have each year. So we know what the problems are. We know how to solve them. But getting people to change their behavior is the hardest thing. But that's the kind of stuff that we've been able to do successfully in other industries. We just need to focus more and more of what we learned in other industries on shifting the power from the healthcare incumbents uh, to customers who are consumers and give them better and better tools. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, talk to you for a couple of minutes about the the Steve Jobs movie, uh, since you're, you you do play a role in this. And I'm I'm wondering, first off, how did you credit? How, how did you say Jeff Daniels did as as uh, being portraying you in the movie? Well, Jeff Daniels is a great actor. Uh, Aaron Sorkin is probably the best in the world of writing, you know, snappy, smart dialogue. Uh, and Danny Boyle's is an Academy Award winning director who won an Academy Award for Slumdog Millionaire. So, yep. so you don't get better talent than that. Uh, so the movie is incredibly entertaining. Jeff Daniels did a great job of showing the relationship, in many cases, tension between Steve and I at important moments. But keep in mind, this is not a biopic. This is yep. not the history of Apple. This is not the ultimate story of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs you know, was you know, learning the young Steve Jobs, the one I knew probably almost better than anyone else on the planet, you know, he was learning and developing and making mistakes like, like we all do. But he ended up being the most successful CEO in the world. But you aren't born that way day one. And so this is an important aspect of, of Steve developing as a person. But keep in mind that the Steve Jobs, who ultimately was known by the world with all of his success, he was happily married. He had three more children. He was a very good person. And so to draw the conclusion that this is the complete story of Steve Jobs, would be wrong. This is entertainment done at its best. It will probably win a lot of awards. Um, but the reality is that this is not everything that <laughs> made up Steve Jobs. And by the way, a lot of the scenes, a lot of the dialogue uh, was written with incredible creative license yeah. um, because not all of it exactly happened that way well and that's what you have to have in in hollywood is because you have to fill it you know in about an hour and 45 minute uh, format uh so yeah, you and, so you do get that creativity yeah and and the film was brilliantly done you know I, I feel you know very lucky to have met jeff daniels we spent some time together got to know one another um and i think he did a great job of, of trying to capture uh the intensity the pain remember steven Jobs and I were incredibly close friends, yep. and then it came down to, you know, were we going to risk uh, letting Apple go bankrupt and abandon the Apple II, the only source of revenue for the next three years, or uh, were we going to shift the money to the Macintosh, as Steve wanted, uh, when Moore's Law said that we were still several years away from having anything that was powerful enough that people would be able to take seriously. So, so that was the, the dilemma 
um, that uh, Jeff Daniels had to deal with when he was portraying me in this film. But um, it, it was a great piece of entertainment. It is not an accurate piece of reality of exactly how things happen. And Steve Jobs really was a very good person. I can tell you that because I knew him so well, I, Steve Jobs. I was going to ask you, you know, let's take the movie part about uh, out of this here uh, conversation for a minute. What was it about Steve that, that made him so unique and then obviously uh, ultimately so successful? Well, what, what made him so unique was uh, he was, like all of us, he was an imperfect uh, personality, and uh, he had been adopted. It was a, a big deal that... Um, that had happened to him in his life because Steve was a control person and he wasn't in control of of that particular aspect of his life. And the the reality was he was able to infuse into his products, you know, the personality. He wanted people to like the products. He didn't care whether they liked him personally, but he wanted them to like the products. Not just like the products, love the products. And you'll see that in, in, in the movie. As time went on and Steve became more mature and more experienced, and, and got over the early mistakes that he made uh, in those you know, first uh, you know, 15 or so years of, of, his, of his work, 20 years of his work life, he had amazing success. And by the way, he had success as a father, yep. he had success as a husband. Uh, so people, I think, are frustrated who know Steve only in his more recent years that the, the uh, film you know, talks about you know, the imperfect side of his life uh, and this is the fact that uh, he laid the groundwork for his greatest vision of the products that he ultimately made not only perfect for the rest of us, but he also became a much better, more complete person himself over time. So Steve Jobs' life was successful on, on many uh, bases by the time he, he finally died. I, I will end it with this final question and, and play off that last statement that you just made. You've obviously you've had the opportunity to to uh, hold uh, unbelievable positions in a variety of different companies, and obviously you're doing a lot of of entrepreneurial work along the way. And even today, uh, would you go back to being a CEO of a major corporation now, or are you well past that phase of your life? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> No, I have no interest to be the CEO of, of, of any corporation. You know, I'm a founder of, of, of a number of uh, very successful companies. Uh, I mentor CEOs, but I would have no interest in being a CEO myself. And if I were starting out again, I wouldn't uh, be working at a large company. But in my generation, we didn't have that choice. You know, the, the uh, role of entrepreneurs and the access to uh, capital and all those things, they just didn't exist when I, I grew graduated from Wharton as an MBA. Yep. Well, then I'll, I'll then let me follow up with this last question then. What do you tell to, to high school seniors and college kids now in terms of being prepared for this changing economy, this changing world that we're, we're living in right now? Starts with having an insatiable curiosity. I mean, you've got some wonderful tools that enable you to follow up curiosity. I mean, you can search anything on the web and find out a lot about it. But be curious, and, and don't worry about whether your first job is your ultimate career. You know, just getting experience at doing anything with other people. Because in school, everything is focused around doing things by yourself and measuring your own competence uh, and memorizing so much uh, information. And yet, that has almost nothing to do with what you will end up doing if you're going to be successful in life. It's about working with teams, about uh, hanging out with really talented people, and so always look for people who are even better than you are to work with. And 
you know, try out many things. You'll have many careers during your working life lifetime. And for, yep. for me, it's always been about looking for the most challenging problems. Uh, there has to be a better way. Be curious, have a sense of urgency, have a focus, and uh, just have fun. It's a, it's a great life ahead, and, and we're just at the early days of an amazing change in the world for those people who care about those principles. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.